Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Kansas is a place where the sky could turn on you anytime. It's an ordinary afternoon, and then the clouds go greenish. All of a sudden, you're waiting for sirens, the sign to get to a basement fast and hope that everything around you isn't about to be destroyed. Tornadoes are terrifying, and they're terrifying in the same way human anger sometimes is. And you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know how to stop it, and you're just trying to get out of its path. Topeka, Kansas, sits right on the strip of America that's sometimes called Tornado Alley. It's a place where you could spend a lot of time thinking about tornadoes. And back in the 1980s and 90s, it was also a place where two people were spending a lot of time thinking about anger. These were two people who lived in the same house. They were, in fact, mother and son. Today, both of them are writers. Their names are Ben Lerner and Harriet Lerner. And on this week's show, they're telling us what they learned about anger back in Topeka. Ben's latest book, The Topeka School, is out this month, and it's one of the best books I've read this year. I can't stop talking about it. But I also can't stop talking about Harriet. We're going to start with her. I'm Harriet Lerner. I am the author of 12 books, and I am Ben Lerner's mom. Today, she's a well-known feminist psychologist, the kind of person who has praise from Gloria Steinem on her book covers. According to Gloria... Harriet Lerner pioneers on behalf of women's whole humanity. But when she was starting out, Harriet didn't particularly care about women's issues. As far as she could tell, women were doing fine. I did not get it. I mean, my whole response to the women's movement was, what could this possibly have to do with me? Hmm. My mother was the boss of the family I was raised in. I've, I got my Ph.D., No one discriminated against me as a woman. And really, if women didn't like standing over the oven, why don't they just get the hell out of the kitchen? That changed when she moved from Berkeley to Topeka in the early 70s. She moved there for a dream job, a fellowship at the Menninger Foundation, which was sort of like a Mayo Clinic, but for mental health. People came from all over to work with the experts at this facility, which was plunked down in the middle of Kansas. Kansas was a long way from the liberal enclaves where Harriet had been living. In a lot of ways, it was a Marlboro Man kind of place where she and her hippie husband felt like outsiders. And even within the confines of the Menninger Foundation, which was not really a Marlboro Man kind of scene, she found herself running up against a particular kind of entrenched male power. In this case, male power speaking the language of old-school Freudian psychoanalysis. The fact that I wore long earrings from Berkeley, earrings that dangled down. 
I was told by one supervisor that this was seen as a reflection of penis envy or maybe even double penis envy. <laughs> two penises. You know, having two, two ears, right. Once Harriet got feminism, it changed the way she saw everything. All around her, there were battles to be fought. One time, she remembers, she'd written a paper revising Freud's theory of penis envy. That is, the theory that a pivotal experience in a woman's psychic life is realizing that she doesn't have a penis and freaking out. Harriet was trying to get her piece published in the Foundation's journal, but it wasn't happening. And that's when someone leaked her an inter-office memo between two of the guys in charge. A prominent psychiatrist had written to the Foundation's head, dismissing Harriet's work and saying that he was, quote, sick and tired of women exposing their so-called feminist pathology, which was, as far as he was concerned, all just a sign of their penis envy. And then he ended with, and God help the children they produce. Now, I happen to be pregnant with Ben (laughs) at the time. (laughs) Harriet could argue with guys like this all she wanted, but at a certain point, she was basically banging her head against a wall. And I do remember a moment at the Foundation cafeteria where I was sitting with a very wise older man. And he turned to me and he said very quietly, Harriet, you can't change your colleagues. You just have to wait for them to die off. Instead of just waiting for the old guys around her to die, Harriet realized she could speak directly to the women she wanted to help. Maybe she couldn't treat them all personally, but she could write for them. And in that moment, I really turned my energy not toward trying to change or convince anyone, but toward my own work. Harriet knew a lot of other women were as angry as she was. That was actually something she wanted to write about, women's anger and how much it scared people. So she wrote an article called Taboos Against Female Anger. Originally, it was for an academic journal, but it started to find its way to other readers. And I got a call from Helen Gurley Brown herself. (laughs) Oh, wow, is right, from Cosmopolitan magazine, who asked my permission to reprint that little article (laughs) on female anger in Cosmopolitan for a great deal of money. (laughs) That was like asking a drowning man if he would like some air, you know. So I said, yes. Harriet started working on a book about anger that drew on her own experiences and the experiences of her patients. She noticed that a lot of women would shove their anger down, try to ignore it, dismiss it. Or if they did let it out, other people would dismiss it and them as crazy. Harriet wanted women to know that their anger wasn't crazy. In fact, it could be useful. The key was paying attention to your anger and trying to understand why you were actually mad. Maybe this doesn't sound revolutionary now, but at the time it was a big deal. Harriet said that if women started taking their anger seriously, they could use it to change their lives. Of course, she acknowledged, that wasn't always easy. It's hard to be perfectly insightful and communicative when you are, as she put it, in the midst of a tornado. Originally, she wanted to call her book Nice Ladies and Bitches, but her publisher talked her into calling it The Dance of Anger instead. It came out in 1985 and became a surprise hit. The book had a huge audience. It found it in the old-fashioned way, through word of mouth, through women who recommended it to other women. Then it got in the hands of therapists. Harriet says therapists would recommend it to their patients, both men and women. 
I did go on Oprah talking about the dance of anger, and I made a point about the language Mm -hmm. for angry women being called castrating and ball-breaking. And a man began to write to me saying that I was hating the male penis. She was used to her Freudian colleagues making everything about the male penis, but the more famous she got, the more dicks she had to deal with. I got many phone calls, and of course, you couldn't trace them back then. I mean, some of the responses I got were really crazy. The direct threat I got that I really remember was someone called my home, and I think what was scary is he sounded very calm and very intelligent, and he said, I'd like to speak to Dr. Harriet Lerner. I said, that's me or that's I. And and he said... I just want you to know that I have been following your feminist career, and I plan to put an end to it. And he hung up. Oh, my God. And that was very scary. These guys were trolls before trolling was a thing. It was almost like Harriet got a preview of the abuse that a later generation of feminists would face online, years before Twitter was a gleam in Jack Dorsey's eye. And like a lot of those later writers have managed to do, Harriet found a way to turn the men's anger back on themselves. Well, for obscene phone calls, I would have a great technique because when they would call and they would say some, you know, dirty thing, and I would say, I'm really sorry, I, I can't hear you. Could you say that again and speak a little louder? So they would say it again already uncomfortable, you know, you could tell. Uh-huh. And then I would say very politely, I'm, I'm so sorry. I am a bit hard of hearing. Could you say that again, you know, with, with more volume? <laughs> and at that point, at that point, they would start to say it again and hang up because it then sounded so silly mm-hmm. to their own ears, you know. In the years when Harriet was getting those calls at home in Topeka, her son Ben was there too. And he was listening. His autobiographical new novel, The Topeka School, has at its heart a mom very much like Harriet Lerner and a relationship with a son very much like Ben. In the book, their names are Jane and Adam Gordon. Jane Gordon is a feminist psychologist in Topeka and a best-selling author. The sections of the book about her life are told from her point of view, addressing her adult son, who's now a writer in Brooklyn. Here's the part of the Topeka school where Jane describes what would happen on the phone during the years Adam was growing up. When the men started to call the house, you were often the one to pick up. And there was probably more than one time when you didn't hang up when I said, Adam, I've got it. I don't know how many different men there were because I suspect many of the calls were the same man, just disguising his voice. But there were definitely quite a few, especially after I went on Oprah. They would often start off very politely, in a normal voice. May I speak to Dr. Jane Gordon, please? But then when I said, this is she, or you fetched me, and I said, hello, the voice would typically drop into a whisper or a hiss, and then, almost without fail, I'd hear the word, cunt. In the book, Jane eventually adopts the Harriet Lerner technique for dealing with those calls. She forces the men who call her to listen to themselves in a way they don't want to do. Back in 90s Topeka, at the same time his mom was navigating a world of male anger, Ben was too, in a very different way. Possibly a less effective way. 
certainly a way that involved more rap battles. When you edit this, uh-huh. please don't. I am not claiming I was good at freestyling. I was, I'm was claiming that I was. I'm not claiming like this is a skill I have and I'm proud of my record. I'm just saying compared to the other people in the basement uh-huh. in Topeka in this very embarrassing scene. I was I was considered to be more adept. Okay. Among the more adept. That's the, that's the extent of the claim. I'd say that's very conservatively couched. Yeah. And don't went, worry. Okay, good. <laughs> that's coming up after the break. Welcome back. This week, we're talking to two people who became experts on anger during their time in Topeka, Kansas. The first is Harriet Lerner, a psychologist and best-selling relationship expert. The second is Harriet's son, Ben Lerner, a poet and novelist, author of the new book, The Topeka School. I've been a fan of Ben's work for a while now, so when I heard he had a new book coming out, I was curious to read it. But I was also curious to hear what other people thought, like my friend Noreen Malone. She's the editorial director of New York Magazine, and she's one of the sharpest readers I know. And it took her a little while to come around on Ben Lerner. If you describe the work of Ben Lerner to me, as many people did over the years, you know, he's a poet. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> red alert. Like, red alert. <laughs> he does this sort of experimental autofiction. You know, one of his novels is set in Madrid and he's super young. And then there's another that's in Marfa. And it's just all about his brain and his poet's brain. I just would be totally uninterested, right? That sounds like exactly the opposite of what I want to read. It sounds self-indulgent. It sounds like not relevant to my interests. And then you actually read it. Yeah. You know, I want to know what people are talking about. And it's just like the best brain to be inside. Reading Ben's books is like spending time inside an interesting brain. And in the Topeka School, you get to experience Ben Lerner's brain before it went to Madrid or Marfa. You get to experience that brain as a teen. And atop the teen brain is the teen hair. I was wondering, to sort of start things off, if you could describe the haircut you had in high school. <laughs> yeah, I wish the haircut was fiction, but the, <laughs> the haircut was terribly real. It was pretty common. I just had, like, I had long hair, and I would often have it in a ponytail, and then the, the sides of my head were shaved. Adam Gordon, Ben's fictional alter ego, shares that haircut in the Topeka school. It's a look Ben now thinks of as capturing his teenage identity crisis. On one hand, he was an artsy kid who was close to his gentle and supportive hippie parents, hence the flowing locks. On the other hand, he was trying to fit in with the macho posturing of his fellow Topeka teen boys, hence the shaved sides. It makes a kind of sense, which is not to say it looked good. Yeah, I can't believe nobody intervened. But the haircut isn't the main thing that's mystifying in retrospect. The main thing, the thing Ben's still trying to understand, was the level of male anger that was all around him when he was growing up. Anger that he just sort of took for granted. He'd go out to high school parties, and nights would end with the teenage sons of Topeka just pummeling each other. It it was extreme and it was unmotivated. It was Mm -hmm. just like somebody from a rival school or somebody spills something and then like somebody gets, you know, beaten unconscious or hit with brass knuckles. What made that violence so frightening was that it seemed like it was coming out of nowhere. Not just in the moment. Somebody spills a drink and all of a sudden they're getting pounded on the floor. Also in general. Like, why were these boys so mad in the first place? A lot of them, like Ben, were sheltered suburban kids with loving, supportive parents. 
parents who definitely assumed their sons knew better than to get drunk and beat each other up with brass knuckles. There was nobody in Topeka as dangerous somehow as the, like, middle-class white gangster. Mm -hmm. And the violence that came out of a certain kind of, like, identity vacuum, I think, spoke to a real kind of crisis amongst white males in particular. Ben was in high school in the mid-'90s. The Topeka school is set in 1997. It's got an approaching tornado on the cover, and it describes a moment when a whole tornado of aggrieved white manhood was just appearing on the horizon. Ben remembers seeing it touch down. In 1999, two teenage boys walked into their high school and opened fire. And the kind of feeling of recognition when, like, Columbine happened, everybody I knew, was response was like, I can't believe this hasn't happened yet. I just mean to say there was a feeling of recognition yeah. and inevitability and not a feeling of, like, us suddenly being like, oh, what's... What's wrong with Littleton, Colorado? Oh my God, or yeah. yeah. So Columbine feels like a specter over this book, right? Like the 90s, this was pre-incel culture. This was pre-Reddit, pre-all of the things that have become sort of, um, you know, petri dishes for, for male rage. That's Noreen again. And like she says, this was right before the internet became the place it is today. No one talked about getting red-pilled before The Matrix, which came out a couple years later. It was the moment of Fight Club and Fred Durst, all this blank, aimless anger, and all these teenage boys searching for a way to let it out. You see the Adam character just find it in normal teenage ways, right? Going to parties, getting really drunk, doing dumb things, getting in fights, right? But yeah. like, but he, you know, doesn't pick up a gun and shoot up a school. Um, so there is sort of like, you know, at the risk of using a stupid too big word there's a sort of prelapsarian feel to the anger here right mm -hmm. but he's like he's just a moment away from from you know the worst expression of teenage male anger becoming a relatively common thing ben wasn't a school shooter of course he wasn't even much of a drunk basement fighter but he was still angry and still unsure what to do with that anger fortunately he found speech and debate it was the perfect outlet for somewhat dorky rage Debate was a world where words became weapons. The point here wasn't to communicate or even make sense. The point was to win. You could bludgeon your opponent with words. One of the ways you did that was literally just to say as many things as possible, so fast that your opponent couldn't respond. This strategy was called the spread. It was a whole specialized skill that required physical training. Debaters would practice speed talking while holding a pencil between their teeth to master it. It's, it's like really fast, semi-intelligible speech most of the time, punctuated by these like really extreme gasps, you know, <laughs> that can sometimes like, depending on the body, sound kind of like barking. Increase about a quarter of the 1% of the country GDP not enough to set the economy to free poll world producers. Ben couldn't find any recordings of his debate days. But here are some other teens to give you a sense. Kids pass out and spit is flying and it's like screaming and gasping. And that was like cool within debate. Like the spread was the like the faster you were. I mean, it became this kind of like almost like erotic performance. <laughs> it was really weird. Like it was so embodied uh -huh. and it was so extreme. Ben became a speech and debate champion. He'd spend his Saturdays traveling to empty high schools across Kansas to compete in tournaments. And then on Saturday nights, he'd go to parties where he'd try to translate his skill at talking fast into a different kind of verbal aggression. Describe your rap battles to me. 
you're drunk in a basement, let's say, that smells like weed and kitty litter, and someone would just start kind of like rhyming along with music that was mm -hmm. already playing, and then kind of like, it just becomes clear that the non-existent mic has been passed to you. I don't remember any girl in our class ever freestyling. I remember it as like an exclusively male activity. Arms around each other, like that could be part of it. And that that, that was probably an unusual authorization to have mm -hmm. your arms around your male friends or something. Mm -hmm. Most like drunk 17 year old Topekans, it would just be like bitch this and bitch that and like threats of one sort or another. <laughs> and thank God um, there wasn't YouTube. This was, I feel I must point out, the heyday of rap rock and Eminem. Boom times for white boys who wanted to rap. If you were a kid in the suburbs who wanted to feel somehow tough or real, rap was what you reached for, no matter how utterly unrelated to your actual life it was. It was a bad time. But when Ben looks back on his own basement rap battles, there's an intensity he can't shake off, even now. Freestyling could somehow release the pressure of a party— all those teens stuck in a basement. I, I feel like it could emerge in lieu of a fight. Like, I feel like there were sometimes that, like, the only imagined form of closure to an evening was somebody getting beaten up because then that would end the party. Like, uh -huh. people would have to leave. And, like, I feel like this somehow sometimes took the place of that. I mean, the point of my, like, linguistic combat was to be, like, a counter-violent. <laughs> like, it was like I could, like, be tough and somehow like kind of cool or whatever without having to fight. Yeah. You know, like that I would, that people wouldn't want to fuck with me because of like, I would talk shit in a certain way if they were to fuck with me, you know? So, I, I mean, a lot of this was like a defensive formation. Yeah. I was not like kind of like gliding through the night, you know, looking for the next beat down or whatever. <laughs> this is the teenage world that Ben depicts in the Topeka school. A world of mystifying violence and high-intensity debate. And yes, also white guy freestyling. And that world existed right alongside his mom's, under the same roof, back in late 90s Kansas. It's only looking back as an adult that he has the curiosity and sympathy to fit the two together. When he was a teenager, naturally, he was too busy fighting with his mom. I mean, I was pretty insufferable and argumentative in high, in high school and middle school. It'd be like take your dishes to the kitchen or whatever. And I would say, I'll do it later. And she'd say, do it now. And then somehow I would, I would start, it would become an argument about like surveillance <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, or about like her emphasis on conventional domestic measures of something. I don't, I mean, I don't even, yeah, yeah. I, I really can't, I mean, I can't empathize enough with that version of myself to know exactly what the position was, but I think I was, I was like plenty, plenty insufferable. Harriet remembers those fights too. Ben was an extraordinary debater, extraordinary debater. And there's only one thing I take credit for, and that is that I think Ben got that fighting with me. Ben was fighting with his mom, but he was also fighting for her. One time, for example, Harriet talked publicly about an abortion she'd had. 
Ben remembers arguing with a conservative debate coach about whether his mom was a murderer. These days, Ben has his own kids to fight with. He's much less angry and much worse at debate. My six-year-old is just in this mode of, like, just not going to get up for school <laughs> until the last possible minute. And, and I don't, like, I have all these incoherent, contradictory, idle threats. <laughs> like what? I just, you're not going to get to go roller skating in the future. <laughs> That's a really good threat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you're going to lose your, your dessert tonight. It's like, I don't want, I don't care. I don't want dessert. Then you're going to lose your dessert forever. <laughs> no, that's not true. You're not going to do that. And it's like, I'm not going to do that. That's right. That wouldn't be fair, but I'm going to do something else that I can't think of right now if you don't get dressed. <laughs> One of the things I loved about the Topeka school was the way it depicts parent-child relationships with all the vulnerability and absurdity they involve. Ben says that he writes his books in conversation with his mom. And there are moments when you can watch him trying to see himself through her eyes. There was a scene that I really loved when I was reading it. I, I sort of laughed over the scene. Um, so she she starts to become the breadwinner. And then um, their son, Adam, he in the middle of the night comes into his parents' room and he has covered his penis and his scrotum in chewing gum. Yes. And, uh, you know, which is just like kind of a bizarre kid thing to do, which is how it would have been said in my house. Bizarre kid thing to do. But in this analyst's household, it is, you know, alternatively read as like, you know, he's trying to not become a man. Some kind of castration, castration anxiety, anxiety, maybe. Anxiety, yes, about the breadwinning, about the angry men who are calling it. It's just, <laughs> and it's probably right, yeah. right? Um, but it's but, also a bizarre kid thing to do. The kind of thing <laughs> right. that, like, you see the parents kind of laughing between each other, even as they're like, oh, fuck, how are we going to get the gum off our kid's <laughs> dick? <laughs> like, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> There's something interesting about the way that scene is relayed in the book, which is that, as you said, it's the mother sections are told in direct address to the son. And as that story is be re being related, she says, you probably won't put this in your book. Yes, I've underlined that. I loved that. I yeah. loved that. And it's almost like he did it as a dare. He's like, yep, that's me, old bubblegum dick. You know, that's, I'm an esteemed poet, but I'm also a bubblegum dick. The end of the book jumps ahead in time from 1997 to the present. You see that Adam, like Ben, is now a father of two girls. What did you think about the sort of novelistic choice to make him, as as the joke goes, a father of daughters kind of feminist? <laughs> you know? Right, the, the angry father is yeah. the father of a son, and and Adam is has daughters, right? Which famously, you know, can often make men more contemplative of their sort of gender role. And I think actually, what the 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 case the book is making is not a, you know, father of daughters feminism, but the son of a mother feminism. When Noreen says father of daughters feminism, she's talking about how you'll sometimes hear a male politician or celebrity explain how, as a father of daughters, he's come to understand that sexual harassment is bad or reproductive rights are important or something like that, which is always kind of irritating. Because the subtext seems to be, oh, it didn't occur to me until I produced my own baby woman that women are actually people. But son of a mother feminism feels like something different. It's like you've grown up seeing women as human beings, and that understanding has shaped who you are. Son of a mother feminism feels like something new. You don't 
see in novels a lot, and maybe I'm wrong, but you don't see a fixation on the mother-son relationship, particularly a healthy mother-son relationship, right? That is what feels sort of revolutionary about yeah. this, right? You see, he, he's not angry at his mother, no. actually. She is in some ways the person who's the hero of the book, right? She teaches him to evolve beyond this anger. I feel like this whole book is is a valentine to you know, the the careful and good and and communicative parenting of his mother. Ben Lerner's book, The Topeka School, is out now. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy our conversation with another champion debater turned writer, Sally Rooney. If there's a well enough rendered sense of sexual tension, the reader will read almost anything. Austin is a master of that as well. Like all the sexual energy of the novel is put into somebody moving a chair or like looking across a room a certain way. And it's amazing. You can find that episode on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie, Olivia Natt and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Stella Bugby. Special thanks to Andrew Tingle, Katie Heaney, and Brian Giddis. Mixing by Haley Shaw. Our music is by Haley Shaw, Emma Munger, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.